0: The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. Never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lapin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lapin show, all you happy warriors. Because anybody who listens consistently and regularly to this show must be A happy warrior, because you know that on this show we do not spend even a microsecond on massaging you with warm butter. That's right. No, we don't. We give it to you always as the truth. And those of you who can handle it, well, you stick around because you're a happy warrior. Those who cannot handle it, drift off to other shows that placate them and massage them with warm butter and say the things with which they already agree and just generally make them feel warm and cozy about the world instead of letting you understand how the world really works. That is the unique function of this, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, welcome you as always value your participation i love hearing from you a lot of people listen on uh, on youtube because uh, we have a channel there and the show goes up there every week uh, and a lot of people write in in the comment section of youtube but you can also comment on other platforms as well like soundcloud and uh, and um, uh, uh, lipsing wherever, wherever you want to but at our website at rabbi daniel com. Uh, You can also, and right there you'll find different ways of listening to the show. But uh, at any rate, look, um, important to dive right into this point. The name of today's show is The Ten Myths, Lies, and Delusions of Dating. That's right, the ten things that men and women tell one another and tell themselves while they're dating that are complete monstrous myths, loathsome lies, and destructive delusions. But I first of all have to lay the groundwork by reminding you that one of the strange characteristics of liberalism One of the stranger characteristics of progressivism, one of the stranger characteristics of the left, one of the stranger characteristics of communism in its purest form is that human nature is um, completely and infinitely malleable. It can always change human nature. So, for instance, uh, when Israel was originally established, in the first half of the 20th century. Now, the State of Israel became a sovereign political entity in May 1948, but uh, kibbutzes were already being established, sort of community-living organizations that served to live together, work together, and, and even mutually defend themselves from Arab incursions. And, and this goes, I mean, all the way back through the, um, the early years following World War I, there were there were terrible pogroms and slaughters of Jews by Arabs including one in the really in the sort of in, in the second most important city in Judaism after Jerusalem, which is Hebron where Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are buried uh, that was in 1929 a dreadful massacre. So uh, these kibbutzes got together and one of the characteristics of the kibbutz and I don't think, Although there are many kibbutzim in Israel, I don't think there's one left that still practices raising the children communally. Now, this used to be the idea. What happened? Um, very soon after a woman gave birth to a child, the couple moved their child into the children's unit uh, where there was you know, special um, nurses and people that were assigned the job of caring for all the children. And in general, the parents would see their children on Friday nights uh, for the Shabbat, for the Sabbath. But the rest of the time, the children were being raised communally. The idea was to encourage people to view all the children equally. In other words, to overcome that primitive notion that your own children, your flesh and blood are more important to you than anyone else's children. And uh, progressivism, socialism, and, and again, the kibbutzes were the, the real Hebrew, it's a Hebrew word meaning community, unified, and the Hebrew plural is not kibbutzes, as I've been saying, but kibbutzim. Uh, but either way, uh, the point is that these were the creation of really unreconstructed Bolsheviks who... Um, who came over and who, who formed Israel. They, they really were looking to create a socialist motherland. One of the reasons that Russia was right up front among nations who uh, recognized the state of Israel because of that socialistic connection. And uh, the goal was to try and get them to see, to teach people, hey, get rid of this primitive idea that uh, – Your children are more important to you than other people's children. You've got to care for society. You know, that's a fundamental underpinning of socialism. And uh, indeed, the whole idea of an inheritance tax, the idea that socialism believes and desires that when a person passes on and returns home to his God— Uh, that all his belongings should be distributed to everyone in society, all the children of society. And, of course, government will serve as the distributor-in-chief or redistributor-in-chief. But the notion that your children should benefit disproportionately from your labors is a primitive bourgeois construct that socialism was going to fix and adjust. This is just one example of the many ways in which socialism believes to this present day, and even in its current euphemistic form, progressivism, uh, you will uh, you will see that one of the characteristics of socialism is that nothing is fixed in human nature. By the way, not even masculinity and femininity. And so uh, the reason that Judeo-Christian Bible-based uh, ph- philosophy is fundamentally at odds with progressivism, you'll see right here. Whereas in the beginning of Genesis, uh, it says um, male and female, God-created human beings. That absolutely unshakable fundamental distinction, two different types of human beings, enormous differences between these two, one called man, one called woman, one masculine, one feminine. Along comes progressivism, there's nothing doing. There is an infinite range, a spectrum of gender identity. Well, they have to say that because to whatever extent the Bible, the defining document of Western civilization, states that male and female are two specific and fundamentally different uh, species, different uh, types, different characters. Uh, therefore, progressivism has to say, wrong, they're exactly the same, it can be expanded, they're all kind, yeah, all of that fundamentally to oppose the biblical view that certain things do not change, certain things are absolutely not uh, changeable as human beings go from generation to generation. Um, I saw recently a situation in which uh, one woman was trying to encourage, two single women, one was trying to encourage the other one to call up this guy. She'd been on one date, and, you know, as is very normal, uh, three, four days had gone by, and she was getting very antsy about it. She really liked him. She was hoping for a second date, and uh, she was a little bit on edge, and her friend said, call her. And this girl said, no, I'm not doing that. And he said, "Come on, are you really going to stick with these old gender stereotypes? Come on, uh, you can call him. Things are different today." And to her credit, uh, the first woman was saying no, and she was having trouble explaining to her girlfriend why she would not call the guy. Which I found very, very interesting. She was, she was having a lot of trouble. She just, no, she doesn't want to. I, I don't want to do that. But um, she was having trouble saying that this would be precisely the wrong thing to do if he is the kind of guy I think he is and he's a masculine guy and and I like him and if he does like me, if I chase after him, that will almost certainly put the kibosh on it. She didn't know how to say that. She didn't know how to explain it. And she probably would have been embarrassed in front of her more... Enlightened, progressive sister, who uh, insists that that age-old gender stereotype has gone forever. Uh, another aspect of that, and this this bothers many of the sisters, is that. Um, Deep down, they want the guy to pay for the first date. If the first date is dinner or drinks or a bar or whatever it is, they want the guy to pay. And yet they know that as woke sisters, part of the progressive sisterhood, they know that they should pay just as much as the guy should. And uh, among themselves, and I'm letting you in on a lady secret here, right, and that is that they have a word for it. It's called the reach where they pretend to reach for their wallet and heaven help the guy who lets them bring the wallet out. Uh, they want the guy to say, don't worry about it. I've got it. I'm, I'm taking it. I'm. And if he's an eloquent guy he'd say, it's a privilege for me to uh, pay for the date. I enjoyed the time together with you. And uh, that's exactly what the woke sisters really want to hear. But of course, they know that they are not allowed to say that. So Uh, Look, no matter what the left does, no matter what training camps they come up with, no matter what re-education camps they throw us into, they will never succeed in persuading us that everyone else's children matters just just as much to us as our own children, that uh, we're getting rid of this old patriarchal notion that our children are really important, more important to us. No, not at all. If you are really a woke progressive, then you care equally for all the children of society. Um, Certain things don't change. Now, you know, why do we speak about Shakespeare being great literature? You know, why is Shakespeare really great literature? Uh, I was going to say better than, uh, uh, than much of... Uh, The literature today, and I was going to mention a a couple of authors today, but then I realized the authors I was going to mention sell in very high numbers, and they probably also capture some of this. Um, So is Shakespeare greater literature than the next Harlequin romance you pick up at the airport bookstand? And the answer is yes, but you know why the Harlequin romances sell in the numbers they do sell? Because for the most part, they do not violate the immutable characteristics of human nature. They know enough to know that if you really want to sell a bunch of books, then don't pretend that human nature is immutable in a limitless way, is mutable, that you could always change human nature. And that's why Harlequin romances nearly always feature, and I know of what I speak Harlequin romances nearly always speak of a very strong man and a, uh, a woman and and, you know, and I'm not saying she's weak at all or anything, but she's a woman who enjoys the surrender. She enjoys giving herself to this big strong man because he's somebody she comes to respect. He's not just a thug, not at all. He's not a thug at all. He's a man of accomplishment. He's got strength. He's got character. And uh, the book inevitably climaxes with her melting into his arms in total abject surrender. And even the woke sisterhood rush out to buy the latest copy or the latest episode or the latest volume in the endless Niagara-like cascade of holoquin romances. But Shakespeare's writing, now we're talking about something really different, of course, because Shakespeare focuses exclusively on things that never change. Now, you've heard me say one of the slogans of all of the teaching that Mrs. Lappin and I do is the more that things change, the more we must depend upon those things that never change, right? What are some of the things that never change? Well, that masculine and feminine are completely different, that they complement one another, that uh, masculine men are incredibly attracted by feminine women, and feminine women are incredibly attracted to masculine men, and Shakespeare recognizes that. Um, The uh, things like envy, Right, that is not going to change. Um, the socialists and the progressives can put us in education, re-education camps. They can try and send our children to geeks. But it's not going to make any difference. Uh, deep down, we know there is such a thing as envy. We also know that it is unworthy. We try and when we catch ourselves, we feel down. We feel bad. We feel guilty when we catch ourselves feeling envious, Uh, schadenfreude, there's got to be an English, well, there's no English word for it, there's an English phrase for it, but the German word schadenfreude uh, means a, a very unworthy human tendency, and that is to be secretly and darkly happy about misfortunes that fall our friends. It's awful, isn't it? But we all recognize inside of us that terrible thing that, uh, you know, if our, we we got a friend who's go, doing well. Everything's going great, and everything's marvelous in his life, and, and, and you look at all the pictures on his Facebook page, and, oh, it's it, everything's fantastic. And then you hear of something really horrible that happened to him, and there's a little part of us that feels happy about that. And you catch yourself, and you say, no, I'm a better person than that. That is unworthy of me. Uh, generosity, right? Shakespeare understands generosity, and he recognizes that it's hard to be generous, but it's good to be generous. And when we find ourselves being the opposite of generous, we, um, we, we feel a little da- down and dark. We're, uh, we, we're glimpsing at a side of ourselves we'd rather wasn't there. Uh, Optimism, to be optimistic, not easy, not always easy to be optimistic, not always easy to radiate optimism and banish demonstrations of fear in front of people for whom you are responsible, whether they're family members or or people you're responsible for in your professional and work life. Uh, To retain optimism, we recognize a good thing, but if you surrender to that and you start expressing fear and you start expressing pessimism, you probably catch yourself that night and you say, what on earth was I doing? What was I thinking? Why did I talk like that? Because we recognize these, these little conversations we have with ourselves were exactly the conversations Shakespeare had with himself 400 years ago and the conversations he built into the incredible characters in his stupendous writing. And, uh, and so it is. We recognize qualities like resilience are really good. Uh, We understand courage, not always easy. We understand courage is good. When we act like a coward sometimes, Uh, we we catch ourselves and we say, you know what? I shouldn't have done that. When a guy breaks up with a girl by sending her a text message, if he's got any quality to himself at all, he he says to himself afterwards, I was a coward. I shouldn't have done that. I, I should have in person. I should have done it. I didn't have the guts to do that. And he looks down on himself, and he says, next time I won't do that again, Uh, because we understand that uh, these qualities are intrinsic to human nature, and uh, they are independent of space and time. Uh, People feel this in Asia. They feel it in Africa. They feel it in Europe, uh, always. The same guilt. Somebody feels guilty. You can almost see the facial expression. When somebody's really feeling guilty, it makes no difference what the person's race or ethnic background is. As a human being feeling guilt, that is so universal, that is so much a part of the human experience that it does not vanish. It doesn't go. And our people will pretend, people who are trying very hard to be woke progressives, they will try very hard. To pretend that it doesn't exist, but that actually simply is not a reality at all. So, uh, knowing that, I have to tell you one other unchangeable fact, and a number of them are going to come out when I tell you the ten myths, lies, and delusions of dating. But um, one of them is very fundamental, And that is that the relationship dynamics between a man and a woman after they have had sex are completely, hugely different from the way those relationship dynamics were before they had physical relations. And uh, I'll just give you one example of that right away so as you can see and start thinking about this because – it's really important to know that. And, again, uh, any, any man of any background who's gone through this experience will not only know exactly what I'm talking about, but will confirm and validate it. And that is that if a, if a man has dated a woman, you know, three, four, five times, they've gone out to coffee, they've gone to dates, they've gone to a concert, whatever they've been doing. And at the end of that time, he thinks to him, he says, you know what, this isn't going anywhere uh, I just cannot see this as a long-term. I, I'm a decent man. I don't want to waste her time. I mean, I enjoy going out with her, but it's not going anywhere. I don't want to do this anymore. It's not in her interests, and uh, I want to break up with her. He has no trouble saying to her, I've really enjoyed uh, getting to know you the last few weeks. I've enjoyed the time we've been together. <clears throat> However, I have to tell you that after much thought and introspection, I just realized this is not going to work. We're not a long-term item. And uh, therefore, I think it's best for both of us if we leave it here. Um, and he says that. End of, it's quite okay. However, every man in this situation knows that if they have already engaged in relations and they've had sex, everything changes. All of a sudden, he is finding it embarrassing to end it. It's hard. Why? Because in the reality, in that physical relationship, she is much more of a giver than he is. She gives herself. He takes her. And, uh, that language, by the way, is employed quite frequently if I go back to Harlequin romances. And as a taker, as a recipient of her favors, he now feels deep inside of him, if he's got any decency at all, he feels a little bit of a heel. He has accepted a gift from her, and he is responding to with walking away, with, with, with no acknowledgement of the huge significance of what it was she bestowed. So there again, something that doesn't change with the passage of time. I'd like you to visit rabbidaniellappin.com, our website, and let me tell you why. Well, first of all, I'd like you to be able to communicate with me. And you do that by going to the Contact Us tab on the website at Rabbi Daniel Uh You can also use you need a as well, same place. But um, either way, you are able to use the Contact Us tab to communicate, write me something, and you know that I will read it, and many of you have been somewhat surprised to discover that I actually respond to many letters as well, personally. I mean, there's a, there's, the, everyone gets some sort of response, but they're not always personal. Some people get a personal response, and that'll always be uh, as a result of something insightful you said or a particularly concise way in which you said it or something that, um, that, that that makes me feel a calling in my heart to, to respond directly to you. And I love doing that. Uh, the only obstacle is time, as always. But that's not all you can do there. You can also read back issues of Ask the Rabbi. And some of the questions are really interesting. We recently had one um, about a couple whose daughter is um, seeing somebody who's like, more than 20 years older than she is and her parents are like really upset about that and they wrote to us asking for advice. And we always uh, pray on this and we always try our best to dig into it and explore and provide as closely as we can come to biblical responses. And that's what, what we do, ancient Jewish wisdom. That's how we work. Uh, we also have back issues of thought tools, right, practical strategies that uh, affect the parts of our lives that that we really care about, finances, family, faith, friendships, and uh, all of that in thought tools. Uh, We also have Susan's musings. Now, those of you who know Mrs. Lappin know that uh, she's not one for diplomacy, Uh, She's not one for uh, carefully shielding her feelings behind flowery but essentially meaningless language. No, not at all. That's not how she writes. And you'll be able to read that as well. And uh, when you've done all that, then you need to go and um, look in at the store and order yourself a lasting love set. Now, the lasting love set is a book Call, it's um, two books and an audio CD program. The uh, first book is called Hands Off, This Might Be Love. And uh, a lot of that is relative to what we are talking about in today's show, namely the fact that physical contact, when a man and a woman are trying to get to know one another with the idea of discovering the possibility of ultimate long-term compatibility, uh, physical touch can be obviously thrilling and delightful and wonderful and pleasurable, but ultimately damaging to the uh, the quest. And that book explains just how and why that works. Hands off, this may be love. The second book is called I Only Want to Get Married Once. And I think that that is self-explanatory. And it's useful for people who have never been married. It's also useful for people who are divorced. And, uh, again, widow doesn't really apply in that situation obviously uh, that is something nobody plans for but uh, and then the audio cd program is an audio program called madam i'm adam decoding marriage secrets from eden and uh, it contains some really beautiful insights and makes the 2 hour investment of time incredibly worthwhile particularly if you listen to it together with your beloved or your intended. Uh, It raises so many interesting questions. By the way, you can also listen to it with your children. It raises really interesting questions and important things to consider, uh, things that very often I have discovered couples who are contemplating matrimony do not actually even get around talking about. So uh, when you listen to this, it forces right onto the front burner uh, things that really need to be addressed when you and somebody else are considering the possibilities of either burnishing your existing commitment or forming a new commitment. Uh, All of that is called the Lasting Love Set. You'll see it at our website at uh, youneedarabbi.com or alternatively rabbidaniellappin.com. And um, also, each of the three components are available digitally. You can get Hands Off This May Be Love uh, on Kindle. You can get I Only Want to Get Married Once on Kindle. And uh, you can also get the audio program of Madam, I'm Adam on a digital download. In other words, no real reason to wait. Immediate gratification, that's the byline of this program, I think you'll agree. Okay, well, with that said, I think I'm ready to launch into the 10 myths, lies, and delusions of dating. Okay, you ready? In the list of the top 10 myths, lies, and delusions of dating, here comes number one. Number one is, we broke up weeks ago, so she'll be okay with me dating her roommate now, right? Or if you like, we broke up weeks ago, so he'll be okay with me dating his roommate now, right? Okay, so uh, let's say you are, let's say your name is Tom, okay? And you were dating a girl called Agatha. And Agatha has a roommate called Betty, And you and Agatha, Tom, you and Agatha broke up. And uh, three weeks later, you now intend dating Agatha's roommate, Betty. And you're saying to yourself, hey, we broke up weeks ago. So she'll be okay with me dating her roommate now, okay? And uh, the answer is most likely not. Now, here, there is a huge difference um, depending on whether... Tom and Agatha had a physical relationship, whether they were sleeping together. If not, then overwhelmingly, Agatha would say, oh, Betty, you want to date Tom? No problem. And in fact, in circles, in more religious dating circles, this is very common indeed. there have been situations where my own daughters have gone on dates. And after the date, uh, Susan Lappin and I would say to our daughter, so what did you think? And she said, well, you know, this is like the third time I've gone out with him and I've decided he's not for me, but he'd be perfect for, and she'd name one of her good friends. And then we would take the necessary steps to make sure that that this guy – Got in touch with this other girl and no problem at all. However, if in fact Tom and Agatha have had a physical relationship, then she's going to be a whole lot more upset about her roommate Betty dating the guy who just broke up with her a few weeks ago. Now, how about in the other direction? Now, in this situation, Tom and Jerry are roommates, and uh, Tom has been dating Caroline. And uh, two weeks ago, Tom and Caroline broke up. And now Jerry says to Tom, hey, you're not going to mind, are you, if I date Caroline? Uh, I've always had an eye for her, and I think she'd be terrific for me. So I'm okay if I give her a call. And Tom, I can tell you now, is not going to be very happy. In fact, he's going to believe that this violates some kind of bro code. Uh, Again, I'm talking about a situation where Tom and Caroline have been living together, as it were, and uh, have a a history, a, a physical relationship going back over time. And now they broke up, and now his roomie, Jerry, uh, wants to date the girl that Tom is no longer seeing. Well, not good at all. Tom is not going to be happy at all. Why? What's going on here? Going back to Tom dating Agatha, breaking up with her, and now um, Betty is going to go out with Tom, and Agatha is going to be unhappy. Uh, Agatha and Tom had a physical relationship. They were sleeping together. And now Agatha's really unhappy. Why? Well, here is the important point. The important point is that in the real world, the way the world really works, sleeping with somebody is pretty much like marrying them. That's right. It's not just... A case of a little bit of mutual friction. It's not a case of just uh, the sort of thing that friends do. No, there's something incredibly profound happening. Uh, a bond has been created, which cannot be terminated by just a high, you know what, I don't think this is working out, let's both move on with our lives. No, it doesn't work that way. And um, you can do that you can if you've just done nothing except have coffee and a dinner and a couple of concerts or picnics with a girl yeah you can end that with a with a hello i don't think this is working out but hey when you are for all intents and purposes married in the sense that a deep spiritual bond has been formed now i understand there are people out there who do not understand the existence of a spiritual reality So for them, they understand this to be of no significance, and they can't understand why it is that these perfectly sane, progressive young people can't just get on with their lives. Why the drama? Why the upset? Why the tears? Why the pain? Why the anger? Well, (laughs) because as soon as you recognize that there are two ways—actually, there are others, I don't want to go into them now— but. There are two main ways to bring about a marriage between a man and a woman. One is through a ceremony and uh, and then subsequently the consummation of the marriage. And the other one is through a physical relationship. That creates the same bond as was created by marriage. Obviously, a profound spiritual bond cannot be terminated by hate. Now, so Tom, as you understand now... Uh, has been dating Caroline, looking at the second case. And now Jerry says to Tom, I hope you don't mind, but I'll be going out with Caroline next time. Tom says, what? What are you talking about? Well, what's happening here is something deep within the individuals that is dealt with differently in different cultures. Until the British um, imposed British rule, in India, you will remember the practice of what I think used to be called suti. I may be wrong on that, but whatever it is, it's the idea that the widow of a man, particularly a prominent man, was burned on his funeral pyre. What was the reason for that? Well, whilst not endorsing the practice, I do understand the underlying sentiment. I always have to put in that little caveat, right, because otherwise the Internet's going to go crazy and say Rabbi Lappin endorses burning of widows. But uh, uh, I understand the sentiment. The sentiment is that she was my woman, and I may have died, but you taking her is still bothersome. It's still a problem. And so, therefore, we're going to put her out of reach by burning her on the same funeral pyre on which her husband ascends to heaven or wherever else. And uh, that's the concept. Look, uh, anybody who thinks that for Aristotle Onassis, who had already had just about any women in the world he could have dreamed of, if you don't realize that for Onassis to have Jackie Kennedy was a particular triumph of a delicious kind only because she was the widow of the President of the United States, and not just any president, but the President of Camelot. Uh, the And I wasn't living in the United States at the time, but, but even I knew, and I was aware, I was very aware of um, – of just how uh, powerful the legend of Camelot was, this, this magical moment in Washington, D.C., where to be invited to the White House and to be a guest of JFK and Jackie, I mean, that was sheer heaven. And the whole social circle that grew up around it still to this day um, plays a role. They still are connected to one another by the Kennedy White House. And, uh, and, and one really has to r- realize just how powerful the magic really was at the time. There's been nothing like it. The Obama White House, for a sick offense, um, came close. But the Kennedy – okay, under those circumstances, for uh, this um, r- Greek ship owner, uh, wealthy Aristotle Onassis, to uh, take – into his bedroom, uh, the widow of the president of the United States of America—really important—and at the same time, by the way, and you, you, you—obviously, you probably don't remember that, but you can go back and search ma- uh, women's magazines and letters to the editor, and the agonies expressed by ordinary citizens, women and men, who intuitively felt the rightness of what exactly I'm telling you now, uh, which is that for a very prominent man, for any man, another man to have his woman is intolerable. But for a very prominent man, that taboo extends beyond death as well. And sure enough, we find that in the the Bible – uh, biblical law, the any king of Israel who died, his widow wasn't allowed to remarry, there it was simple um, and again the important thing to understand is not to sort of waste time concretizing this in your mind the old poor woman stuck you know, put that out of your mind and just realize the Bible is trying to convey to us uh, some fundamental wisdom here which is that um, for another man to sleep with my wife is absolutely intolerable, so much so that many legal systems around the world recognized me murdering him as a semi-understandable crime of passion. Uh, it, you know That is such a violation that is so far beyond the norms of what a normal man can tolerate in the way that God created men and women – that uh, that is intolerable. So, okay, so for uh, for a man to have my woman while I'm alive, that's absolutely intolerable. How about if I divorce her? Okay? Well, I, I mean obviously she she can go ahead and remarry. no question about that. Uh, does it bother me to some extent? Absolutely. No question about it. And any normal man who's honest with himself, and whose emotions have not been eroded by the acid of today's toxic culture, uh, any man will recognize, yeah, there's there's something like that. That's a little bit like our story of Tom. Tom and Caroline, well, yeah, they were married. They had a profound, deep spiritual bond for a very simple and obvious reason. And now he's divorcing her without as much as a how-do-you-do and now she's going off to marry um, his roommate, Jerry. Of course he's bothered by that. Absolutely he is. Uh, to a much lesser extent, um, going back to um, uh, Agatha, who uh, was dating uh, Tom, and now along comes her roommate, Betty. If they were not, if Agatha and Tom were not physically involved, then I've, as I've said, not an issue at all, if they were, well, then it's a little. It's I will tell you this: it's not nearly on the same level as Tom and Jerry and Caroline. It's the in, the emotional intensity is not the same. Um, why is it? Well, let me uh, go to George Bernard Shaw, the great English playwright who had um, so many marvelous. Uh, little expressions and bon mots, and uh, and uh, one of them he sa- he wrote. I think it was in Maxims of a Revolutionary, if I'm not mistaken. He said um, most good women would rather have a share of a first-rate man than exclusivity over a mediocre one. Whereas most men would rather have exclusivity over their woman, regardless of mediocre or excellent, and uh, there's a lot of truth in that. There's a lot of truth in the fact that uh, there are many, many societies that have functioned polygamously, but no societies that have functioned polyandrously. The Bible doesn't encourage uh, a man having more than one wife, needless to say, but it covers it, it deals with it. A woman cannot have two husbands, that is profoundly destructive for reasons along the lines of what we've discussed. But uh, a man could have two wives, theoretically. The Bible discusses it not in order to provide a concrete account of what a man can do and how to manage with two wives. No, because nobody's going to marry two wives, and ultimately it does get prohibited. But um, in the meanwhile, the concept is that a woman is better equipped to be able to share her man with another woman than a man is equipped to share his woman with another man. There's a lot more to say on this topic. Um, some of you might remember that in, in an earlier podcast, I told you about a uh, Christmas Eve lecture I gave in California a few years ago. Um, I was invited to give a, a speech on Friday, on Christmas Eve, And um, when I asked why me, they said, well, uh, because most Christians are with their families on Christmas. And I, you know, slapped my forehead and I said, silly me, obviously. Well, I'm available. Um, And they told me about the organization. Well, not to put too fine a point on it, uh, the organization was a very loose and informal organization of about 100 women um, who were all unified it was more of a cl- more like a club or a social group than an organisation formally structured. It was women who um, uh, were all girlfriends or mistresses of married men. That's right. We're talking California. Okay, what do you what do you expect? I'm sure this doesn't happen in any other state. And uh, these women were all miserable. On Christmas Eve, they uh, realised that their boyfriends were with their families. And it was also a reminder to them that it was extremely unlikely, in the near term anyway, that their boyfriends were ever going to leave their wives and marry them. And so it was an extremely bizarre evening for me. I mean, I think I acquitted myself fairly well. But you got to understand, like, there's women on one another's shoulders sobbing away. There's women dabbing their eyes with, with tissues and... And I, I did my best to to give them a, uh, a, a good lecture, a meaningful lecture of substance during that evening, and many of them stayed behind afterwards to ask me further questions. We spoke. But, you know, imagine what it's like giving a talk, and you know that it's nothing you're saying but – Three-quarters of the audience have tears running down their cheeks and dabbing their eyes with Kleenexes and holding hands with one another and putting their arms around one another and giving each other little hugs. And I thought at the time – you know, I couldn't get this out of my mind. It's so true that – this is a perfectly understandable group, right? There's not a single one of you who listens to me saying this and says to me, Oh, come on, Rabbi Lapin, I don't believe this. there can't possibly be such a group of women. Yeah, you know there are. All right, that's not hard to understand. But if I were to tell you that, oh, I met a group of men whose girlfriends are married, and these guys get together a few times a year to console each other because their girlfriend, they all cry and they hug each other, you know. Really? Again, I don't think you would ever believe such a story because guys are simply not willing to share their women with other men, period. Uh, Under certain circumstances, women are willing to share their man with other women. And so um, Betty uh, might well be able to go out with Tom without incurring the wrath Of the terrible wrath of Agatha. Agatha, I think, in the way that any woman who gets divorced and then gets uh, to hear that her ex-husband is getting remarried, that's not happy-making. Right. right? It just isn't happy-making. And so uh, Agatha is also here. She's now been peremptorily dismissed by Tom. And now she discovers not only is Tom getting remarried, if you like, because he's soon going to be sleeping with Betty, but uh, his new wife, quote, is actually your friend, your roomie, your roommate, your friend. Okay? It's painful. No question about it. It's painful. Uh, It's going to hurt, and Agatha's going to feel bad about um, preventing Betty's happiness. But she's going to be miserable. She probably won't be angry as much as she'll be miserable. She might be a little bit angry. She'll be mostly miserable. Uh, in the other case where Tom discovers that Jerry is now um, spending time, days and nights, with his former girlfriend, Caroline, uh, Tom is not only, he's not only unhappy, he is good and angry as well. One final biblical uh, principle will help wrap up this particular myth-lion delusion of dating. Uh, And that is in um, uh, Leviticus chapter 21, uh, verses 7, 10, 14. Uh, We discover some rules about the priest. In Hebrew, is called the Kohen. And then there's also the high priest called the Kohen Gadol. Okay, fine. Bottom line is um, that the regular priest is not allowed to marry a divorcee. Okay, he may marry a widow, but not a divorcee. So let's for the moment then say that we've got three classifications of women, virgins, divorcees, and widows. Okay, a woman who's never been married, a woman who's been married and, uh, and divorced, and a woman who's been married and her husband died. So a regular... Um, everyday kind of priest. Well, he is allowed to marry a never-married woman. He, can, he may marry a virgin. He may marry a widow, but he's not allowed to marry a divorcee. And then you get the high priest, uh, t- verses 10 and 14. Now, he um, must marry a virgin because he's not allowed to marry a divorcee and he's not allowed to marry a widow. Again, instead of wasting time sort of concretizing this image in your mind and wondering about what kind of vengeful deity wants to impose these kinds of rules and regulations on the romances of his officiaries. Uh, don't go that down that um, avenue of, of, uh, of drudgery and dreariness uh, and tedium. This, that's going to get you nowhere at all. But if you see it as a laboratory statement of principle, well, now we get something. And that is that uh, this guy, this priest, he's supposed to be able to be able to be focused intensely on spiritual realities impacting the people of Israel. The high priest, even to a greater extent, he's unique. He's only one of him. There's a whole bunch of priests. And um, these guys have to be able to function on a, an extra spiritual level. So now um, let's think about this. Again, try and dispel from your mind any corruption whatsoever that might have inadvertently crept into your consciousness and having to do with uh, society-imposed ideas, that these principles are old-fashioned and patriarchal tribalisms, and that uh, now, just get rid of all that and just be a natural human being, be a natural man or a natural woman, and, uh, and say to yourself, um, if let's put it this way, uh, there is no man on earth. Who lives with a woman who has lived with another man, who doesn't think to himself, "Wow, there was another man in her life before me," and with all kinds of ramifications and implications that I don't want to even get into right now because it's not that directly relevant. I only want you to see that um, a widow is better than a divorcee. Again, not better in the sense there's nothing there's nothing intrinsically. Uh, qualitatively wrong with a widow or divorcee or anybody, that's not the point. But from the point of view of this guy who's got to be very spiritually focused with no spiritual distractions, you can understand that if the previous man, the man that this his wife was with is dead, that is a more comfortable situation than if the man who his wife was with is walking around. Right, so on, on a, you know, I know that for many of us, we're going to be tempted to say, oh, come on, stop being so primitive. We're sophisticated guys. Who cares about this sort of stuff? Well, if you were honest with yourself, you do. Right, that's the reality. And, uh, and the reality is that for most men, having other guys walking around saying to them, and you know they're thinking to them, whenever they meet you, you know, you, you're at a social event and your wife's former boyfriend is there. And, you know, he's thinking to himself, hmm, I remember when I had her. And even if he isn't at that moment, you believe that that is exactly what he's thinking. And that's why it is that uh, uh, very often when a girl says uh, to oh, you know, my boyfriend, we we, we, we got to go to this party. We've got to go to the social event and then she says a day or two later she says oh by the way my ex is going to be there as well right in other words um, in uh, in in our case here um, caroline is is telling her boyfriend jerry her new boyfriend jerry oh we got to go to this party we got to go to this event it'll be wonderful and you know jerry's happy to make caroline happy so he says yeah sure a day or two later she says to him by the way jerry i just have to tell you Tom, you remember Tom, my ex? He's going to be there as well. Let me tell you that if he's honest, Jerry says to himself, I am not so happy anymore about going to this event. I'm not at all happy, right? Because for the same simple reason, he doesn't need to be there with a guy who knew his wife. It's very simple in the biblical sense, of course. Uh, It's very simple, Now, obviously, if this is a more religious dating environment where nobody's been sleeping with anybody, all of these circumstances are completely innocent and comfortable. There's no problem at all. Everything changes because it's a big deal. And so um, then when we come to the high priest, well, he's got to be even more spiritually focused and with no spiritual distractions. And so for him... He cannot marry a wife who was – who's divorced and and was – whose ex-husband is still walking around. He can't even marry a woman who's widowed. Okay, so there's only one high priest in, in the whole world at any given time. So this doesn't exactly put a crimp on ladies' dating possibilities. But uh, but again, the bottom line is, just so as you understand, this really important uh, sensitivity hierarchy, virgin – divorced, widowed, right? Um, And in that hierarchy, uh, it is most comfortable for a normal, honest man to marry a virgin. It's next most comfortable for him to marry a widow. And the third most comfortable, or if you like, the least comfortable of the three, is to marry a divorcee. Uh, That is what Leviticus 21 is teaching us in just understanding the incredible power that comes from a spiritual bond we think of as marriage or the same spiritual bond that's brought about through this incredibly earth-shaking and monumental physical relationship that the popular culture is trying to tell us is no big deal at all. Okay, now we come to Myth, Lies, and Delusions of Dating number two. My girlfriend is having dinner with her ex, but it's nothing. They're just friends. Or my boyfriend is having dinner with his ex, but it's nothing. They're just friends. So uh, this is now Caroline commenting on the fact that her new boyfriend, Jerry, um, is having dinner on Tuesday night with his former girlfriend who he broke up with about a month before he started sleeping, I mean dating, uh, Caroline. And um, and Caroline says, oh, no problem, it's nothing, they're just friends. Uh, or the other way around. Um, this is now um, Jerry saying, uh, Caroline is having dinner with, um, her old boyfriend. Next week, he broke. She broke up with him about a month before we started dating. But uh, it's nothing. They've, they, you know, they just they've been friends for a long time, and uh, it doesn't mean anything at all. Well, it means a whole lot. Now, let me explain that. Uh, obviously, almost everything that we explore in human affairs can be explained in terms of evolutionary theory. In spite of the fact, and this uh, is an entirely different subject worthy of a show all on it, so um, entirely uh, independent of the fact that, um, that Darwinian evolution uh, as a theory is breaking down. Now, don't, don't tell any of your friends in academia because uh, they don't know that, and they still judge the value of a scientist – by the extent to which he prostrates himself at the altar of Darwinian evolution. But at any rate, uh, what the evolutionists would say, the materialists would say, is, look, um, yeah, of course Tom is worried that Caroline is having dinner with her old beau, with her old boyfriend, Um Uh, Because from an evolutionary point of view, Tom is worried that somehow or another, Caroline will sleep with her old boyfriend uh, instead of having just dinner with him, and that way um, Tom uh, will think that it's his genes that are going to be propagated in the world, but it actually is going to be another man, his lady's former boyfriend, and that's why he's uneasy. But this is purely an evolutionary hangover, and since Tom knows that he can trust his girlfriend and he knows that they're just going to have dinner, he can safely put out of his mind any concerns because it's just a primeval ganglion ringing in his brain. The reality is that there's absolutely nothing to worry about. And as a new modern progressive woke man, uh, he can say to her, go along, enjoy yourself, have a wonderful evening, see you later. And, um, and from a uh, materialistic point of view, that's exactly what the culture says, you know, don't be a, a primitive, jealous kind of guy. No, you know, just recognize, you know, you can, you can trust her and that's all there is to it, Right. But just because something can be explained through the lens of a now discredited and rapidly becoming anachronistic theory of Darwinian evolution doesn't mean that it should be explained that way. It doesn't mean that that is in any way an accurate rendition of what is really going on. So why don't I tell you from a spiritual point of view what really is going on? What's really going on is that the uh, idea of a man being jealous and concerned and protective and even a little possessive um, is perfectly legitimate. Now, I'm not saying that women like uh, a man who carries this to an absurd extreme and uh, becomes uh, suspicious and judging. No, I'm not talking about that at all. But uh, many women find it rather appealing when a man feels that, um, yeah, the, the, all the words I use, protective and even a bit possessive. Uh, yeah, exactly. That, that makes a lot of sense. Why? Because she is yours. And she is your entire hope for the future. She carries your self esteem and your ego in the palm of her hand. And uh, yeah, of course, of course, you feel protective and, uh, and, and recognizing that there is a reason that in the ancient Jewish wisdom perspective on biblical rules of dating, uh, not only in dating, but at all times, there is a very strong and strenuous objection to uh, a man and a woman being secluded in any kind of semi-intimate surroundings, such as over a a candle-lit dinner in in a small restaurant, yeah, with, uh, th- that is absolutely true. Um, if she is not his wife, there is a real question about whether that's a good thing. And I wish it weren't so, but the wisdom of this um, has been proven by the entire so-called Me Too movement. It actually goes back even further than that, I miss, all the way back to 1991 when uh, what happened to Justice uh, Kavanaugh uh, was tried for the first time by the Democratic Party in railroading their worst nightmare, a conservative black jurist, and that was Clarence Thomas. And, uh, and Joe Biden really revealed his colors then. Um, it was perfectly evident to anybody who invested a little bit of time in this, that uh, Anita Hill was making this stuff up and that uh, everybody believed that it was a vitally – everyone on the left believed that it was a vitally necessary and virtuous activity to prevent the ascendance of uh, Clarence Thomas to the United States Supreme Court. Um, And again, at the time, I pointed out that had Clarence Thomas uh, stood – by this principle, which, by the way, is adhered to by the current Vice President um, Pence, which is never to be in a secluded situation with a a woman that is not your wife or or not a family member. And had uh, Justice Thomas adhered to that, uh, it would have been much harder for Anita Hill to have brought these charges against him, and uh, and whereas the this would ne- not necessarily have helped Judge Kavanaugh because these allegations apparently went back to to when he was seventeen years old or something, but uh, uh, if you think to think of the many men whose careers have been derailed by contemporary allegations of uh, anything from harassment to rape of women going back years if uh, and and of those many of those men have completely denied the allegations if those men had never ever allowed themselves to be alone in a hotel room with uh, a woman to whom they were not married uh, the whole thing would have been much more difficult to fabricate if it was a fabrication so that is a a rule and, uh, and it is a good and wise rule that, that one really uh, disregards at one's own peril. And so here again, it is perfectly legitimate for either Caroline to say to Tom, you know, I really don't feel comfortable. I do not feel comfortable with you having a dinner just with, uh, with another, uh, another woman, especially since she was a former girlfriend. Or Tom saying to Caroline... Uh, no, I'm really sorry. That's not okay by me. You may not, and I'm telling you exactly how I feel about this. You may not have a, a private tete a tete dinner uh, with a former boyfriend. That's not on. You want to have him come with it? You want to make a foursome of it? That's fine. Whatever you want, you want to talk on the phone? That's fine. But that, I don't want to. I don't want that to happen. And a man saying that is perfectly legitimate. Now, I'm not saying this because. I think that Carolyn is going to cheat or Tom is going to cheat. It's not because I'm saying that something is going to happen. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the uh, electricity present in every male-female interaction is such that particularly when people have previously been intimate, And they now get together, and, and, you know, each one may be now with another partner. Nonetheless, that is an interaction which does not do the current relationships any favors. All right, that should be be clear to everybody. On some level, um, you you can see that to have a partner in a marriage, and here I'm talking about a marriage – uh, but obviously, I'm also staying true to the axiom that when a man and a woman sleep together, they are kind of married. Now, I'm not saying legally. Obviously not. I'm not being pedantic about this. I'm saying that the all the necessary conditions for a deep spiritual connection have been met, and the surprise should not be what I've just said. The surprise should be, oh, you mean that same intensity of spiritual bond can be forged by nothing more than a wedding ceremony? Wow, that's interesting. That that bond can be forged by a physical act of sexual congress should surprise nobody. But um, since obviously... The concern is the welfare of the current relationship. I'm sure everybody can see that um, that time spent with an ex-part isn't good. There is no good that can come of it at all. Not that anything, um, betrayal is likely to take place. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that the emotional and mental and spiritual turmoil that is stimulated during that dinner will come home to bed with the couple when the dinner is over and uh, the couple are once again reunited. Uh, and, and that should be pretty obvious. It really should. So uh, while we're at it, why don't we also just dispense with the platonic? Oh, they're just platonic friends. Uh, don't you believe that for even one moment. Uh, that Whatever that word is meant to mean, the fact that it's named for the father of modern socialism, namely the Greek philosopher Plato, uh, should be enough to warn you that there is uh, a lie embedded in that. Oh, it's just a platonic relationship. Uh, yeah, that would be um nothing but naive for anybody to actually believe that. Uh, so the uh, that was the second lie that, uh, oh, my boyfriend is having dinner with his ex, but it's it's nothing. They're just friends. Yeah, thank you. It's it's a lie. Get rid of it. It's not helping your relationship one little bit. Which brings us. To myth, lies, delusions of dating number three. Yes, number three is everyone has one true soulmate somewhere, and my purpose in dating is to find him or her. That's right. I'm sure you've heard this, or maybe you even thought this. Everyone has one true soulmate somewhere. There's only one person who's really, really meant for me. And the reason I'm dating so many people is I'm just trying to find him or her, uh, whatever it is. And again, this is one of the, not only the most uh, uh, delusional of dating mistakes... It's also among the most destructive. It's destructive on a number of levels. Uh, one is that uh, it conveys a Hollywood-based lie, uh, that somehow there is just this one special person. For this, this is really the only person with whom you can be happy. And uh, I must tell you, at our website at com. We have a section called "Ask the Rabbi," where every week we answer um, a, a baffling question we get asked, and and then people write in. Well, one of the uh, comments in that follow the question and answer on our website actually spoke uh, to me. This, I, I, th- I just read this in the last few days, where um, one of our audience members wrote in and said, oh, I'm so in love with this woman, but uh, for various reasons that he describes, I don't want to go into it now, uh, we can never be together, and I will never, ever be able to love again. She was the one who was meant for me, but since we can never be, I am destined, I will always be alone. And, you know, I'm not going to say this, but I wanted to say what." unbelievably turgid bilgewater is that? Really? Like, there's only one person meant for you in the whole... And then I realized, you know, after watching a lifetime of Hollywood movies, why would anyone think any different? We all become indoctrinated by what we see, even if intellectually we don't believe it. But when you let data infiltrate your brain through the emotional pathway, you don't have control over the impact it's going to have on your soul and on your entire decision-making apparatus. And so uh, it's really important to get away from that notion and to understand that the truth is that uh, if you are a strong enough man... If you are a masculine enough man, you could literally pick any woman out of a hundred women paraded in front of you. And as long as, on some level, you found each one sexually attractive, you would be able to build a very happy life. That's right. It doesn't have to be anybody specific. It depends on... You as a man, it depends on the uh, strength of your commitment. It depends on the strength of your character. It depends on the firmness of your conviction and the clarity of your vision and your ability to not only impart that to your woman, but to excite her with her role as your partner in the fulfillment of that vision and the bringing, uh, bringing to life of that dream. Right? Right? You should be able to do that with almost anybody, and uh, women, again, uh, provided the, the guy fulfills certain basic criteria, which I've discussed in, in some detail in an earlier podcast of a couple of months ago, uh, whose title will very clearly indicate that that's what we're talking about, uh, the, uh, the, the same holds true. Um, she could marry any one of a 100 or a 1,000 men, all of whom fulfill the basic criteria uh, of uh, decency and stability and ambition and all the other things I've spoken about. But uh, with, you know, without any notion, oh, we fell in love. There was an instant spark as we looked at each other across the table. Uh, no, none of that. And it can, it, it can, and would be a, a, a deep, love-filled, passionate marriage, perfectly fine. Now, in the real world, unfortunately, we're not all uh, powerful men with deep commitments, and we're not all women whose femininity is still in good shape. Because, yes, uh, the corrosive effects of the culture do manage. To make women a lot less feminine and to make men a lot less masculine, and I'm talking about this, by the way, in very, very real terms. Um, you know, you have to know that there are a number of activities which are uh, physically based, in other words, requiring considerable physical exertion, the kind of thing that men do all the time, which when women uh, undertake very often, and, and this is uh, uh, just the most remarkable medical fact and reality, but uh, in such cases, very often, uh, women stop having their periods. Their fertility vanishes. They become less woman-like in that category. By the way, uh, some ballerinas are in that, um, I think, unhappy situation, but, I mean, obviously they choose it. Uh, And, again, what's happening is they're driving themselves physically, keeping themselves to a a very narrow range uh, weight-wise and demanding extraordinarily um, strenuous physical uh, commitment and exercise and drive. So, yeah, not surprisingly. Uh, Many years ago in the 1980s, AT&T reported in their earliest experiment to uh, to hire this goes back years, right? I mean, feminism has been going for, for more than half a century. 1980s, ATT and started hiring women linesmen. You know what linesmen are? Uh, they drag um, heavy toolboxes through the bush to get to the base of a high tension electricity transmission tower, and uh, um, the and then they have to climb up. Uh, 150 feet up the tower uh, carrying on their belts a whole array of heavy tools and then they've got to strap themselves in on the top of the tower and deal with whatever needs to be done. And uh, they reported and again this was uh, this was in all the medical journals at the time and I was very struck by this that they were discovering that their um, first br- their first uh, tranche of female hirees, for the, uh, for the lineman position, all stopped having their monthly periods, and they were not happy about this. And so one of the things the uh, utilities did was they started um, introducing toolboxes on wheels so as that at least um, carrying the toolboxes for large distances, as the men were doing all the time, uh, would now be – that that arduous task would be eliminated – and the women would be able to roll the toolboxes uh, along. So anyway, the idea that a woman's hormonal structure can be shaped by how she behaves, by the things she do, she does, uh, is obviously no um, shocker to anybody. And uh, the other way around, it's also true. Um, there was a period, and again, this goes back uh, a couple of decades, when crying therapy was being promoted as very desirable for men. And there were uh, coaches and therapists who would sit in a room with men and get them to all start crying and weeping. And, oh, this, they were all oh, so good of you getting in touch with your feelings. And, and And the guys didn't know what to make of it. But, you know, they got sent by their girlfriends or their wives or whatever was going on. And uh, everything was fine until uh, somebody said, well, this would be an interesting test to do. Why don't we check their testosterone levels before and after they go in for the crying therapy? Would you believe it? Testosterone plummeted and uh, estrogen climbed. These guys really became uh, feminized uh, by the process of crying. Yeah, that's right. Um, Another example, this one is a lot more disturbing. And uh, this is Northwestern University, by the way. I cite that just because I know some of you are going to say, "Oh no, come on, you're not serious." Uh, yeah, I'm very serious. Stay-at-home dads, folks. I'm. I'm really. I'm sorry. I mean, look, I, I, this is an immensely problematic area. I've spoken about it in the past. I've told you that while the woman is out making a lot of money and the guy's home looking after the kids, that marriage is probably doomed. It's not uh, long for this world. But in addition to that, and probably not in any way disconnected from it, uh, Northwestern researched this and discovered that stay-at-home dads lost testosterone and climbed with estrogen. So yes, indeed, um, you know what? The good Lord knew what he was doing. Uh, that's that's all I'm going to say. And, uh, and uh, we are... Uh, um, in that situation now of having to try and repair and restore the damage that the culture has done to men, to women, to marriage and to society altogether. Uh, but so yes, let us recognize that uh, uh, that a terrific marriage relationship comes about through commitment not because the person is one unique, and uh, and special person, who without whom you can never be happy. Uh, and look, I mean, I understand uh, for adolescents in puppy love affairs, it really does seem as if you know now that her dad won't let her go out with you anymore. Your life is over, uh, and you know we we all know you know poor kid. We know what he's going through, but it isn't really over, and so it is with adults. Uh, adults who also should know better but have been utterly indoctrinated to believe that, oh, there is my true soulmate out there just – and I know I'm going to run into him. It's, you know, it's just a case of finding the right person, and uh, that's why I'm dating so many guys. And that is uh, uh, number three in the, the list of 10 myths, lies, and delusions of dating. So, uh, let's go on to number four, shall we? Yes, number four is, you always recognize true love. Oh, yes, and this is a follow-on from the previous one, of course, when uh, you finally do Meet that one and only, that person who was created to be your mate. You will know it instantly. The electricity will fly. You will know. Now, I don't dispute at all that there are male-female relationships that are intense. And there are male-female relationships where eyes do just meet across a room And just nothing more than the appearance, nothing more than the expression, nothing more than the look uh, resonates in both people, and uh, and they can't wait to get together. I, I, I know that happens. I've seen it happen. But to suppose that that is the basis for a lifelong commitment called marriage is absurd. It's just laughable. That's not how the world really works, not even close. It goes without saying that it's obviously very important to recognize the existence of lust and to recognize that the good Lord placed that quality in our beings uh, in order to make sure that uh, a man will leave his mother and father's home and seek to build his own home with his own woman. Yes, uh, and when eyes do meet across the room, and there is this magical moment, and there is this electrifying second of transfix transfixation, <laughs> and I get it, uh, of course. And it sometimes it sometimes does happen, uh, and and that. It, it feels absolutely irresistible and it feels magical. Uh, and, and it all is. And it may be possible for that couple to now transform that into marriage, but their task is made harder, not easier, by the overwhelmingly powerful attraction that both feels that both feel. In the normal order of life, for most of us, uh, it doesn't quite work that way. Yes. Uh, You obviously do feel a strong attraction, and there's this emotional thing, and there's this physical thing, and the lust is is present. Uh, But you mustn't make the mistake of escalating what is going on into love, because it's not love. Love doesn't happen like that. Love is something else entirely, and it's really important to keep lust and love completely separate. You want to know what love is? In a, in a nutshell, it's very simple. In the Lord's language, in Hebrew, the word for love is the uh, composite of two words: "I give." And what that means is that when you are overwhelmed by an almost irresistible urge to be a, a beneficiary, to uh, to to give, um, uh, to be benevolent, to 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 be the giver then you are experiencing love. But uh, when your overwhelming emotion is, oh, I want her, or oh, I want him, uh, you're not talking about love. You're talking about lust, and you may as well understand that. So let's have that clear. No, you will not recognize true love. Uh, When love happens, it's as the result Of what two people decide. And that's when love begins to flourish. Uh, Always recognize true love. Nah, doesn't work like that. Which brings us to number five in the list of ten myths, lies, and delusions of dating. Number five. That's right, number five. And this one is usually uh, said by girls to their girlfriends, to their parents. And what they say is, no, it's always in response to an inquiry, by the way. No, he doesn't have a job, but he could get one anytime he wants. And then it's usually followed with an explanation that he's writing a novel or he's a songwriter or he's in a a band and he's he's always creating a piece of software or he's an entrepreneur and he's starting a business. And uh, very simple follow-up questions will establish whether this is a self-lie and a delusion or or whether it's real. But any time... Uh, If you're a girl and you catch yourself saying, well, this guy I'm dating, he he doesn't have a job, but I'm sure he could get one if he wanted one. You catch yourself saying that, and you are perpetrating lie, myth, and delusion number five in today's top ten list. Um, The idea that a man should be viewed as completely separate from what he does is in itself a big lie. Let me put it this way. Um, when you read, and you, these days you can hardly avoid it, right? It's on TV, it's on billboards, it, they come to you in unwanted ads on your computer. A male performance, right? How many times have you heard that expression? Now I ask you, how many times have you seen advertisements for solutions to female performance anxiety? The answer is never, right? Because performance is one of the burdens of being a man. Now, there may be some of you ladies who say, oh, what are you talking about? It's just as true for women. Uh, Hold your horses. It really is not nearly as true for women. Not even close. Uh, from when they are young boys, as long as they're being raised by wise and responsible parents, young boys already have imparted into the depths of their beings the huge question of what am I going to do when, I, when I'm grown up. And I know that uh, fathers who have feminist infatuations try to do the same thing with their daughters. It just doesn't work the same way. Little boys know that they're going to have to figure out what they're going to do. How are they going to perform in the all-important area of bringing the bison back to the cave? If you want to go with the evolutionary explanation for what's going on, But the reason I so intensely dislike the evolutionary one is not on religious terms. No, if you like that religion, go for it. I I really believe that everyone should have the right to follow whatever religion they choose. And if you want to follow the religion of Darwinian evolution, go for it. But my objection to uh, to, to that belief system is that it then encourages you to obscure truth. You see, what it then says is that, well, nowadays, since we no longer live in caves and we no longer need to be strong men who race out with spears and bows and arrows to kill bison to bring back to the caves our families can eat, and we don't do that anymore, well, therefore, this whole concept is wrong, and um, and men and women are exactly the same. So. That evolutionary approach tends to encourage you to make this horrible mistake that um, the identity of a woman being tied to the job she does is just as valid as the idea that a man's identity is tied to the job. And nothing could be further from the truth. The fact is that, uh, and unfortunately, we've had numerous cycles in the United States, um, of economic uh, downturns where uh, tests and analyses and medical statistics have been able to be drawn, whether it was the steel industry going in uh, the Pittsburgh area, whether it was um, much industry vanishing in Massachusetts and Connecticut, uh, whether it was – there have been been numerous instances. In every instance, something we now know beyond a shadow of a doubt – is that when men lose their jobs, they also lose, well, if you like, sexual performance. Uh, impotence follows, and uh, sexual dysfunction, a huge problem for men who suffer from job or financial stress. Uh, simply not true for women. Does not happen with women. Yes, uh The male identity is hugely tied in. I am who I am inseparably from what I do. Performance is a male prerogative. And your job or your business or whatever it is you do to serve your fellow human beings, that is an essential part of your performance. I'm sorry, an essential part of your identity. And that's one of the reasons why it is that uh, uh, whenever you hear interviews of people who uh, are retiring after a lifetime as a fireman or as an insurance executive or whatever it is, almost inevitably one of the questions that they get asked is, hey, if you had to do it all over again, you know, what would you do? And I'd say not all the cases, but in, uh, in my experience, 90% of the cases – uh, the person says, I would do it exactly the same. It's been a wonderful life. I had a, a great career. I'd do it exactly the same thing again. Only a tiny minority of people, ah, you know, I think next time around I want to be a doctor. But uh, overwhelmingly, everybody, why? What is that? Is it just such a miracle that all of these people who got asked that question were somehow miraculously matched with their ideal job? So that 40 years later, they were still able to, yep, that was it. No, it's not that. It's that over the course of 40 years, their souls get enwrapped in what they do. And it's not that I've often taught on this, that we don't seek out jobs to do that we love. We seek jobs that we must do, and we learn to then love them. And uh, much of this is simply not applicable to women. It just isn't. And uh, again, I (laughs) always give these caveats, you know, you shouldn't – Judge me too harshly and be so disappointed in me because I am violating everything you believe in. This doesn't mean women can't do perfectly good jobs in many areas. I I don't think uh, women make really good um, specialists in some areas, but but that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is that uh, if the guy you are dating, ladies doesn't have a job, but he says, you don't have to worry any time. Whenever I want to, I can get one. I just don't want one right now. Uh, you need to escape while the escaping is good. You need to get out of there and, uh, and quickly because you want a guy who either has a terrific relationship with his career or at the very least has a disciplined and, uh, and optimistic view of his job Uh, Or you want a guy who may not be working yet, but that's because he's finishing an apprenticeship, he's finishing a training period, he's finishing a a degree or whatever it is, but uh, what the course he'll be on is absolutely clear. Now, this doesn't mean that three or four years after marriage you don't find that your husband says, you know what, I know that I've been a doctor up till now, but you know what, I really want to become a priest. Um, (laughs) Yes, that happens in marriage. It happens a lot. And a woman is… Is entitled to to say, uh, look, you know, that's not exactly what I signed up for. We need to talk about this. Uh, sometimes a, a woman will say, you know, what it means so much to me to live with a man who is fulfilled and committed and passionate about what he does that you know we'll work we'll work around this this rather shocking change of career. Uh, or a woman might well say, look, we're going to have to talk about this. Uh, this is a real problem for me. And uh, very often. People like me get called in to help solve, help the couple solve that enigma. So, um, yes, if he doesn't have a job but he says, don't worry, I'll, I can get one when I want to. Uh, no, not a good idea. And uh, that brings us to the end of number five. And that brings us to number six. In the list of the top 10 myths, lies, and delusions of dating. I know he says he's not interested in marriage, but he'll change his mind. That's obviously a woman talking. Um, He keeps saying he's not interested in marriage. He keeps telling me he's not interested in marriage, but I know better. I know that when he really gets to know me, when he really falls in love with me, when he really sees that I'm the right person for him, he'll change his mind. Okay. Um, Obviously, if you are a woman who believes that, then you are not ready for marriage. Let me ask you a question. You're a woman. you got a choice of two relationships. One is the results. Of a guy who's never thought twice about marriage, never thought once about marriage, has no interest in getting married at all, repeatedly tells you that, and then falls in love with you. That's right. The sparks go off, and he now all of a sudden is starting to talk hesitantly but definitely about marriage. That's one kind of relationship you can be in. The other kind of relationship is... Um, On the very first date, the guy says to you, you know, I'm at an age where I want to get married, I want to start a family, and I want to meet women who are interested in the same thing in the hope that I will find somebody compatible. And uh, so my question is, would you rather find yourself in a relationship with a man who had no interest in marriage, but he's really falling for you big time and you can just tell this is going to end in marriage? Or would you rather be in a relationship with a man who, at the moment, the sparks are not there, but um, he's definitely interested in marriage, and you feel that um, with a little bit of time, you both will either feel the spark or you won't, and then you'll move on? Those are the choices. If you chose choice number one, you are not ready for marriage. You're much, much, much better off. With a man who says, "I've just met you. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know you yet. I don't. I, you know, I certainly am not in love with you or anything. But uh, from everything I do know about you on paper, uh, we could be compatible. Now let's try and find that out. That's one kind of guy you could be seeing, or the other one who is uh, marriage. I'm not into in marriage, but boy, am I head over heels for you. And if you pick that." You're making a big mistake. You see, the Bible says, therefore, a man must leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife, and they should become one, one flesh. Okay. Uh, In reality, of course, it is women who are far quicker and readier and more able and more eager to leave their mothers and fathers and cling to their husbands. Right, But you may have heard me explain in the past that the general rule about the five books of Moses is that uh, it does not tell us to do things that come naturally. Right? There's no rules there that say, uh, Jews, make sure you breathe. Jews, make sure you eat three meals a day. You don't have to worry about us. Uh, those things are fine. But when we're told to do something, then obviously... There is a reason. It's that our instincts are likely to lead us the other way. Uh, the, The Torah doesn't say to women, you should get married, because God created women with an innate desire. In other words, there is something which men know nothing about called baby hunger. A deep, unquenchable Overwhelmingly and compellingly uh, strong urge for a baby. Now, guys do not have that, right? Their bodies do not send out "I need baby" signals. They just don't. Women do, and so in general, women are far more uh, able to to, uh, to 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 relate to the idea of marriage. I was just. Talking this morning to the father of a 19 year old girl, and I said, Well, uh, in the religious world in which you and I both live, uh, I'm quite sure that she is starting already to hear from um, matchmakers, Shadchins, it's called in Hebrew. Um, people, well, she said, well, as a matter of fact, yes, what happened is that uh, she was at the market the other day and she ran into a woman who was her teacher a few years ago when she was in 12th grade. And that woman looked at her, immediately called up, and this is my friend saying to me, so my wife and I get a phone call from this woman saying, I just met your daughter. I haven't seen her since I taught her in 12th grade. She's gorgeous. I've got just the right guy for her. So I said, what did you say? He said, well, I, I told her we're not ready yet. Um, and he said, look, i I'm, I'm, I tell you the truth. I'm just not ready for my 19-year-old daughter to um, to start thinking of getting married and leaving home. So I said to him with a smile, I said, uh, I have to tell you two things. Number one, you will not feel any readier when she's 21. You won't feel any readier when she's 23. And the second thing I want to tell you is – That um, I don't, you haven't yet told me if you told her that her former teacher came up with a suggestion, but this I will tell you that if you did, she will tell you she wants to meet the guy. And he looked at me with astonishment and he said, Yes, that's exactly what happened. We said to her at dinner that I said, By the way, we got a call from your teacher. Oh, yeah, I met her at uh, the market today. Well, she said she has the ideal guy for you, but we told her that uh, we don't think you're ready yet. And she said, Look, I mean, I may not be ready to walk down the aisle with anybody yet, but I don't really want to miss out on, you know, who knows, that may be, it might have been a very good guy who might be the right, if not, we'll, no, it's not, but I'd I'd like to meet him, and I said, see, there you go, because uh, she is ready, everything inside of her entire biology is now saying, time for me to start my own home and create my own family, um, now, a 19-year-old guy is not thinking that. one of the reasons that traditionally and contemporarily we find that women, generally young women, marry men a few years older than them. If they're both already somewhat older and more mature, that uh, imperative vanishes. But, uh, but, but there it is. Now, the, um, the, the, so in that situation, the guy knows full well that uh, he's being introduced to this young lady for the purpose of ascertaining whether there is a potential for a marriage there. And that can be done in two or three dates, right, maximum. That doesn't mean you're getting married, but it is enough time to rule out somebody. And so this is what happens in religious circles all the time and also in wise circles where courting rather than dating is practiced. And, um, and you break it into two parts. Is the uh, – are, are the two of us – are there any uh, obvious strong reasons why the two of us could not or should not be together? Are there certain incompatibilities? Uh, I don't find you attractive. Um, I'm very concerned about your family background. The fact is uh, – we know this from clinical observation – that um, – children of divorced backgrounds have a slightly higher tendency to get divorced themselves so it's quite reasonable for a person being introduced to someone else to say you know what at first at first shot if, if I have a choice I'd rather not go out with somebody who comes from a divorced background. Now you know she may um, she may say you know what I, I saw him. Uh, or he may say, oh, "I I saw her um, at at a social event. I, I very much like the look of him or her. I know that there is a divorce background. It does worry me. I'd like to um, I'd like to meet him or her anyway. The, these things get dealt with. But at any rate, after the first two or three dates, it's established. You know what? No point in going further. Or alternatively, it's established. Yes, this, uh, this is worth exploring further. That's not a commitment to get married, but neither is it a commitment to date for two years. And that, ladies, I cannot uh, tell you sufficiently strenuously. Uh, s- dating a guy for a long time is not in your interests at all. Uh, and, and this is the reason. If you've got a choice between a guy who isn't particularly interested in marriage, never even thought of it, but, oh, has he fallen for you big time, Uh, you really aren't nearly as well off as you are with somebody who says, you know what, I'm ready to get married. I don't know about if you're the person yet, but I I am seriously looking for marriage. That is uh, perfect. But among these myths and lies... Is the woman who says to herself, I know he's kept on saying he's never interested, he's not, not interested in marriage at the moment, but I know he'll change his mind. You don't, you're fooling yourself. It is one of the most insidious uh, lies and delusions of dating. Number seven. Here we go. What is number seven? Yes. Number seven is, hooking up is no big deal these days, right? That's myth, lie, and delusion number seven in the world of dating. Hooking up is no big deal these days, right? Well, wrong. Now, um, earlier in this show, uh, I discussed the uh, incredibly powerful impact this uh, activity, this behavior, this conjunction has. And uh, look, I know that I'm swimming upstream here. I know that uh, the the culture as a whole, if I were to go on television on some uh, popular talk show and discuss these things, um, the laughter would be so cutting and so cruel and so vindictive that I probably would be uh, completely terrified of ever doing it again. Uh, But it's always like that. If you think about every major scientific breakthrough, uh, the very first time the concept is suggested, and I'm not suggesting this, I'm far from the first person, by the way, don't think that. But in general, in, if you look at the history of science over the last three or four hundred years, uh, there are almost no exceptions, none that I could think of, where the very first time the theory was articulated, uh, it caused such hilarity that very often the career of that particular scientist was uh, jeopardized uh, or very negatively impacted. Uh, Because there is so much investment in the current ways of looking at things, and I'm talking about monetary investment, reputation investment, career investment, look, apart from anything else, if a scientist has spent his entire career becoming the worldwide authority on this particular thing, and along comes a new young scientist who says, you know, I'm afraid that New evidence is showing that that whole thing is wrong. It's not, it's not the way we've always believed. Obviously, scientist number one, the older guy who's or woman who's uh, built his entire career and whose existing reputation stands on this. I mean, he's fighting for his life. And so he'll do anything to smash the new theory because it jeopardizes the entire pyramid on which he sits. And it's like that with everything. And so um, when I come along, and it's not – you know, unfortunately, this is not a new theory. It's been around for quite a long time. But when I come along and say, look, it's not the way you're being told out there, uh, where when a man and a woman sleep together, it's nothing. It's just mutual friction. It's a sneeze in the spinal column. It's just a friendly thing that people do. Look, this is the line. This is the official line of the culture out there, and it has been for decades already. Uh, Hugh Hefner and the Playboy philosophy. Look, the Playboy philosophy is a way of making something sound elevated and noble and academic, which is really uh, something that's been pretty basic in human life for a very long time, which is uh, men... Will do anything for sex, Uh, they will ruin their careers, they will spend fortunes. They will, men will do anything to attain access to an attractive female. That's that's what we guys are conditioned to do, and uh, it's obviously in men's interests to uh, perpetuate the notion hey, what we want from you is no big deal. And here again. I just repeat um, for emphasis something I said a little bit earlier, which is that, again, men throughout the contemporary cultural period from the early 1960s till now have certainly done their best to suppose or to suggest that it's no big deal. And they've also and, – and this was Hugh Hefner particularly launched this genius idea, <clears throat> and that is uh, they're both exactly equivalent – Men and women are exactly equivalent, uh, and so let's not pretend it's pretty straightforward. Women want it just as much as men. Men want it just as much as women, and we're both partners in this. So let's dive in together. And uh, the reality is, I'm not. I'm not saying that female libido is weaker than male. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that uh, pursuit of sex is far stronger in the male than the female, and almost anybody who has lived in the real world for more than a uh, a few days actually knows that as a reality. It is also um, the woman giving and the man taking. And uh, uh, as I said earlier, that is not only the language of the romance literature industry, uh, it's the language of intimate reality. Uh, The woman is giving herself, surrendering herself, the man is taking her. that is a reality and um, and that does change uh, the the dynamics obviously uh, in in so many ways now, uh, here we are we're saying, okay, look, um, please dispel the notion that this you know that that this is absolutely nothing and it's uh, that women feel under pressure to deliver. And I understand that, because there is a competition for men, and uh, the girl says, well, you know, if I don't, somebody else will, and uh, and and I'll be left out. I understand these horrible pressures that girls are subjected to in the contemporary materialistic culture, the secular culture. I get that. But uh, – uh, and I'm I, I'm not providing any quick and ready simple answers here because if you are in that culture, it's not as if you can just apply an antidote because antidotes are culture-specific. But um, that hooking up is very much a big deal, sure. Let me touch on another aspect of it. Look, um, the blending of bodily fluids, if you'll pardon me getting a little bit uh, graphic here, uh, we understand, obviously, that certain physical and material transfers take place. Uh, sexually transmitted diseases are, are one negative and sad example, uh, and many, many things like that. It's, it's perfectly obvious. Uh, there was a, uh, a time during the emergence of the full-blown AIDS panic in the 1980s. Um, the the classic book of that period was called "And the Band Played On," um, and it you know it was it was something that gradually began to be understood. And yes, transfer of intimate bodily fluids. Yeah, that that is what communicated something. So now I'm just raising the question: Is it so utterly preposterous? to suppose that something that is so potentially chemically reactive, you know, namely the blending, as I've described, is it so completely preposterous that it has the capacity of conveying not only just physical phenomena, but also spiritual? Is it really impossible that – that the man is forever slightly changed in some subtle way by every single encounter he's had with any woman, and even more intensely the other way, um, because in the um, in the actual uh, transfer, the male is a uh, a, 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 communi- a, a, a putter outer, and the rece- and the woman is a receiver. Um, is it really that far-fetched to speculate about the possibility that uh, a woman is impacted in some way, spiritually albeit, uh, by every man she's been with? And, um, and the answer is no, it's not that strange. Uh, is it true that there is some residue of DNA that then is forever left in the woman after every encounter, that has not been definitively ruled out. Obviously, there is a very strong secular bias for um, eliminating that notion. And uh, and again, you can see reports of the research vary dramatically uh, whether the a reporting journal is on the political left, on the political right, or completely scientifically neutral. Uh, bottom line is that while nobody is willing to say, and rightly so, that every encounter leaves a, a tiny DNA marker in the woman from that man, uh, neither are researchers willing to rule it out. In other words, uh, DNA, male DNA, is found. In uh, in women who have been sexually active, uh, but the theories aren't clear. It could be that uh, it comes from a pregnancy of a, of a male fetus, a male baby. It's possible it comes even from their mother's placenta, uh, from an older male sibling. Uh, but it also cannot be ruled out that it just may be that um, that. When a woman has a physical relationship with a man, there is actually something left behind of that man, which is then a part of her for always. And I can understand why a uh, concupiscent and libertine culture would like to banish this thought because it's horrifying. I mean, if there is anything that would make a woman think twice about a casual hookup culture, it's this notion that once she has said goodbye to the guy – he hasn't ever actually said goodbye to her and never will because there's a part of him with her forever. We don't know that that's the case, but it's not been possible, it has not been possible to rule it out as one of the explanations for the, um, the true fact, which is that DNA, male DNA, is found in women who have been um, sexually active. Now, and also, by the way, to a lesser degree, in, in some women who haven't. So it's all very uncertain, but. Um, what I did come across is kind of interesting, and, and this is, um, this has been uh, worked on. Nobody has, nobody has um, uh, refuted at all this research in the last five or ten years. It, the first I saw of it was about, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. It was research from Australia, um, the University of New South Wales, And they came up with something which was really very interesting. You know that in genetics they use fruit flies to a great extent. One of the reasons is they have a very quick generation. You know, you can easily watch several generations of fruit flies uh, during the lifespan of a normal uh, laboratory experiment. So anyways, uh, what they found was that um, if, um, let's say, fruit fly – uh, Abigail is fertilized by fruit fly John. Um, then, obviously, that uh, Abigail's offspring show DNA from John. But here's the crazy thing, and that is that if uh, she previously had sex with another fruit fly. Right? a different one called Harry and he didn't fertilize her but they just had uh, a connection then the offspring that um, that Abigail fruit fly Abigail has contains the um, the DNA of John but is also impacted by characteristics of Harry which is crazy and and um, sure enough it turns out to be the case were they even uh, they even rendered um, fruit fly harry uh, impotent in some cases by well i'm i'm i'm, I'm going to spare you what they did to fruit fly harry but fruit fly harry was made incapable of fertilizing fruit fly abigail's eggs but not incapable of um, of uh, connecting with her, and in spite of that, even though he was not able to communicate any of his, um, uh, they actually call it semen with fruit flies as well, which I didn't know, um, in spite of that, there are uh, characteristics from fruit fly Harry, which is found, which are found later on in fruit fly Abigail's offspring, the result of fertilization by fruit fly John. Um, look, this is, this is really, really cool, but I think it can also be very, very disturbing. The implications of the study are that any mates that a female has had may leave some legacy, and it's not clear in what form. Uh, it's not in the DNA, but some, uh, some aspect of legacy could show up in her future offspring with another mate, so that is the indisputable result of the fruit fly is, is that true for human beings? I'm not I have no idea but if somebody were to come along and say uh, we've got incontrovertible evidence rabbi lappen uh, look at this would you believe this amazing thing and that, that there actually we've we've proven now that uh, that there is some permanent marker left in in a woman from a man she's had a relationship with, and I'd say, yeah, that doesn't shock me. A physical connection is so profound between a man and a woman, and you now coming to tell me, guess what, that leaves the woman permanently impacted by that uh, relationship. I say, yeah, I'm I'm not in the least bit surprised. Like, why? Yeah, I, I know how powerful that act is, and so I'm not in the least bit surprised. I get it. It's not not a problem at all. So um, hooking up, not a big deal. You're kidding yourself. It's a huge deal. And uh, that brings us now to number eight. Uh, This is now a man talking, and he's saying, My income is irrelevant to her. She really loves me for me. She's not a gold digger. She really loves me for me. My income is irrelevant to her. Okay, that is myth, lie, and delusion number eight in today's top ten list of myths, lies, and delusions of dating. Now, let me just make absolutely clear. I regard the term gold digger as a disparagement and as a slur against women. And uh, I want to make absolutely clear that any woman who does not take into account the financial prospects of the man she's being introduced to or the man she's dating or the man who's courting her is a silly little fool. Uh, It is very relevant indeed. Now, let me uh, also say that... um, It would be equally foolish for a woman to say, I really need to know his tennis score. Uh, What's his golf game like? Um, I need to know uh, whether his hobby of model trains is cutting edge. Does he run a digital train layout, or is he old-school analog train layout? Um, No, that is all stupid. All very, very stupid. It's irrelevant. It has nothing to do... Uh, with whether or not you will be happy with that man. But all of that is completely different from his uh, financial prospects. Why is that? Um, Again, touched on it before, and that's why I'm able to go through these a little more quickly than the early ones, because I established many of the axiomatic and fundamental principles as we went through numbers one through five. But uh, it's important to understand, as I've said earlier, that a man's identity is tied up with his money-making ability. It is. It's very much tied up. Now, um, I was discussing this with uh, a very smart businessman recently, and he was saying, well, uh, what about a uh, a guy who um, – is living on a trust fund and uh, drives a very fancy and expensive car and spends a lot of money uh, and sort of sits around doing nothing very much, and somebody else who doesn't seem to have very strong financial ambitions because he's, you know, he's making a, a, a very modest income working for some kind of nonprofit that he really cares about. And uh, w- which one is a better bet as a husband? all things being equal, most likely the second one. Right? Most likely the person who's actually working, even though his income is less. In other words, what I'm not saying is that uh, a woman should automatically favor somebody with a higher income over a lower income. What I am saying is that uh, it, it. I'm saying to guys, don't for a moment think that your financial prospects are irrelevant. Um, if I were to tell you you stand a better shot at a higher quality woman. If you are a uh, ambitious, hardworking, financially successful guy or a guy on a track towards financial success, you stand a better chance of attracting a higher quality woman. Absolutely. I'm telling you the truth. You can know that. And please don't shrug it off and say, ah, oh, she's just a gold digger. Not at all. She is a woman who understands that you will be a more deeply tranquil person in harmony with yourself and with those around you if you are comfortable with where you are financially. That is really important. And uh, for guys contemplating their careers, guys starting off, guys thinking of getting married, hey, you know what, if um, you really want to get married or you're in love with this girl, whatever it is, uh, but you are two or three years away from uh, being on track financially, and that doesn't necessarily mean making a lot of money. It doesn't mean that, but it means being on track. Your life plan is on the rails. It's making progress. You're two or three years away from that. I'd say, wait, don't get married now because you will be able to attract a higher quality woman when you are there than before you are there. Um You do not want a woman who is attracted to you because you have a pretty face. You don't want a woman who is attracted to you because you've got a bad guy persona. That's not the woman you want to devote the rest of your life to and you want raising your children. It's not what you want. And so uh, uh, when uh, a guy says, my income is irrelevant to her, she really loves me for me, that's a guy who really should not. Be getting married just yet, that's for sure. And now we come to number nine. Yes, number nine is here it is, stand by, ready? It's healthy to date many people before settling down for marriage. How many times have I heard that? Yeah, it's good. You must you must date a lot of. Pe- I've heard mothers and fathers telling their own children, "Oh, don't 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 marry the first person you meet," and you must really you must date a lot of people before you finally settle down. Uh, look, I'm not saying jump into marriage. I'm not saying for the sake of marrying the first person you date, just marry the first person you date. I'm not saying that, but uh, what I am saying is that the idea that having a history of many many dates behind you of having been with many people behind you before you get married, that that's a healthy thing? Absolutely not. Um, you know, I don't place an enormous amount of store in the studies and because these days the way universities have become utterly corrupted in so many different ways, uh, you can actually commission a study which will have all kinds of wonderful names and degrees attached to it you can commission a study if you're willing to pay enough that will come out with pretty much whatever you want. Now, um, if it is, you know, if you uh, if you are willing to pay a lot to get a prominent scientist to say the Earth is flat, he's not going to do that because that ruins his reputation. But if you want to get scientists to say that um, the Earth is warming up and the coastal cities all going to be drowned out in the next five, yeah, you can get that because predictions are not science, right? Predictions are not science. And so you can get scientists to risk predicting things because very seldom does anybody come back five years later, oh, you said that. Almost nobody ever does that. And so uh, there are books of foolish predictions made by prominent scientists who were just plain wrong at the time. But nobody really goes back and penalizes them for those wrong guesses. So you can get that. But... um, but in terms of the so-called social sciences, yeah, you'll get pretty much what you want. And there's also an existing secular bias. And so uh, pro-sexual experimentation, yeah, very much a factor on the college campus in both social and academic arenas. And, uh, but nonetheless, in spite of that all, there are some amazing studies Correlating happiness with no previous sexual partners. In other words, virgins marrying virgins actually do produce the happiest marriages. Is this so far fetched? You know, again, I haven't done the clinical work, I haven't checked out the studies, I haven't examined the statistical methodology, I haven't done all of those things because I don't have to. Uh, I simply say to myself, um, there isn't a man on earth who would not rather, if all things being equal, would rather that he was his wife's one and only. Right. Now, many men will uh, will mask that with a bravado uh, that says, oh, I'd, I'd much rather marry an experienced woman. Uh, it's not true. They're fooling themselves. And I have had those conversations with guys and Uh, In the quiet of my study, in the darker hours of the night, when things are quiet and uh, we are bonded by a snifter of good brandy, uh, these guys have broken down and out comes pouring the, uh, the deep unhappiness they have with the almost inescapable subconscious fear that their wife is always comparing them to one of her previous who-knows-how-many encounters because they don't know the answer to that. And in order to get by that, in order to overcome this horrible feeling they have of being measured up and compared to uh, because of their wives' previous sexual history, they developed the bravado. Oh, I'm pleased I married a wife with experience. I didn't have to go through the awkwardness of those first few days, weeks, or months of virgins marrying vir- Oh, yeah, great. Okay, uh, bottom line is uh, when I read a study uh, and I watch interviews of cases of people like that uh, – and they and they speak of how happy they are that there is no third or fourth or fifth or sixth person in their bedroom that it is just the two of them and that they both saved themselves for this yeah it doesn't baffle me i say to myself yeah you know that's that's beautiful and it, it'd be lovely if everybody could have that but most people aren't willing to pay the price for that good at the end of the road or at the start of a new road and uh, Uh, Obviously, when people view marriage as, oh, the end of all your fun, and now you're entering this tough time of life, and you've got to now be serious. Look, um, if you see it that way, well, then I guess that's completely different. But if you see marriage and family as the real start of the most exciting and fulfilling part of your life, then obviously you'd look at that a little differently. I understand that. But uh, bottom line is that... if you are a young person raised in today's culture, you will have heard this from somebody. Uh, it's healthy to date many people before you settle down for marriage. And you should absolutely know that that is a big, fat lie. It's not something. Uh, the the ideal, the, the beautiful thing that is a huge... Um, uh, enhancer of marriage is to know that there are no strangers in your bedroom. Okay. It's, a, it's a wonderful thing. Uh, not everybody has it, but there it is. And uh, that brings us to the last one, the final one, number 10. This one is uh, I hear from guys, and uh, uh, in in my coaching, I have a number of, or I have had a number of single men clients as well as uh, married men. And one of the things I've heard from single men, because we we talk about the interaction of money and marriage all the time, and uh, one of the things I hear is. Um, you know, he's, he's contemplating buying a new house, and uh, he wants to – they want to get married and everything. And then he says, she says she wants to build her career, so I know I can count on us being a two-income couple. <laughs> uh, yeah, that is the last. That's number 10 of today's list of the 10 myths, lies, and delusions of dating. Yeah, she says she wants to build her career, so I know we can count on being a two-income couple. And on that basis, he's going for a a mortgage that uh, is beyond what he could manage himself. But that's okay because she plans on working as well. Everything is cool. Um, Look, let me tell you what there is a 90 percent chance of happening down the road. And this is to the credit of women, not the discredit. In other words, I'm praising women for this and that is that this woman he is engaged to and they're about to get married she absolutely means what she says yes she does mean to be working why because there is no way on earth she she simply is physically and emotionally incapable of understanding the irrepressible surge of overwhelming emotion she's going to feel when she holds her own baby in her arms for the first time and when that happens everything changes and she's going to be horribly torn and now, you know she's going to have maternity leave she'll be home for 6 weeks but as the day looms closer that she has to return to work she is going to be torn and unhappy And she knows she's committed to a career. Her boss is waiting for her to get back. She dreads the thought of saying, I'm not going back. She knows that her husband is counting on her income. And uh, she weeps inside because she cannot spend more time with her baby. Her soul cries because she knows that a caregiver will be the first person to see her toddler ...pick him or herself up and toddle across the room for the first time. Uh, She knows that somebody else might even be the first person to see her child smile. So, yes, that would be the last of today's 10 myths, lies, and delusions of dating. Please, gentlemen, do not take seriously what your wife says about what things will be like after you start a family. Because... Neither of you have any idea, particularly her. And number two, be a man and don't hold her to it. Be a man and say to her, you know what, we'll do whatever it takes. I'll get a second job. We'll sell the house, move to a less expensive house. But if you want to be with our children, that makes me the luckiest guy around. I'm proud of you, and I want to support. As your husband, you're supporting me and my children. I want to support you and our children it is a privilege for me to carry that financial load. I'm happy to do it, and I couldn't do it without your inspiration and your love and your encouragement anyway. Let's go for it. Unfortunately, um, that's not what I hear most of the time. We actually got a comment on our website at rabbi rabbidaniellappin.com at the Oscar Rabbi. Just recently, um, somebody wrote with great sadness that how much she wanted to stay home when she started having children, but her husband didn't want her to, and she felt that she'd made a commitment. Yeah, it is very sad when that happens. There's no question about it. Uh, And so, my dear friends, that brings us to just about as far as we can go. The website, youneedarabbi.com, or alternatively, rabbidaniellappin.com. Please take a look ...at the uh, Eternal Love Set. As I told you, it's two books. I Only Want to Get Married Once... ...and Hands Off This May Be Love... ...and it is an audio... ...a two-hour audio program... ...called A Madam, I'm Adam... ...Decoding Marriage Secrets from Eden. All of that you can see at the store... ...at rabbidaniellappin.com. You need this set... ...either for your own marriage... ...for that of your children... ...for a sibling, for a friend... There is somebody in your orbit, if not you yourself, that can be blessed by some of the things you will learn from the uh, this Eternal Love set, two books and an audio CD. By the way, you may have one of those three uh, things already. You might have one of the books. You might have so the uh, the individual pieces are available independently as well. Not a problem. You can go ahead and get those too. So all of that at rabbidaniellappin.com. Don't forget to write to me at the Contact Us tab. And uh, don't forget to enjoy Thought Tools and Susan's Musings and Ask the Rabbi. All of that at rabbidaniellappin.com. And I expect us to cement our relationship right there at the website. I wish you a wonderful week of good times with your family, with your faith, with your friendships, and with your finances. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless. Spilling ancient solutions to modern problems in areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network.